Jordan and Gretzky, Serena and Ruth Remembering great ones is easy to do What about the tailgates who spent their whole lives Long stepping footballs and catching sack flies They're guys, remember that guy Remember that guy, remember that guy Remember that guy, remember that guy They're just gonna remember some guys now well, I don't think there's a proper way, proper way to like deal with whatever emotions you're dealing with. Cause every human being is different. Like you're different from me and everyone else. We're one in, I don't know, trillion or something like that. The chances of even being a human. So, um, when you think about it from that perspective, everyone's mindset is different. Uh, I know personally definitely sucks. Um, you know, coming in here too, you know, definitely wish the results was a lot different, but at the end of the day, it is what it is. And it's remember that guy, the show where we mind our memories for notes of nostalgia about peripheral players, past and present. Hey there folks. I'm one of your hosts, James. Diaz back with you once again. It's it's a tough pill to swallow, but we have a very special guest with us today. He is the one thing that can save and unite America in these trying times. Please introduce yourself. That's right. You know, it's me, Joe Biden, the guy who's going to bring everyone together and unite the country by moving everyone from the South all into Texas and then cutting Texas off and turning it into an island with a moat around it. And then everyone else will be happy and no Texas. I was hoping we could get the real national uniter, which is the meteor that could strike Allegiant Stadium during this upcoming Super Bowl. But unfortunately, their schedule is busy because they need to get ready to strike the Super Bowl in a couple of weeks. But Xavier, it's nice to have you on. For the record, I'm incredibly happy for the Taylor Swift fans because they're all happy and they're all enjoying this. It's their first time and that's great. Good for them. They're not so fucking numb to this that they just feel no emotion whatsoever walking out of the sight of uh, enti- City's entire heart getting ripped out. But it, I don't want to be melodramatic. I have found a different way, if you all don't mind, for making memories. I, I want to touch on like a concept that I really took notice of this particular week. It's not a specific thing. It's more sort of a situation that I think you notice any time a city suffers a really bad sports loss. And it's this sort of centrifugal stratification of everyone in the population the next day into a couple different camps. I see three camps, essentially. They're pretty broad. But the first one, it's the people that are devastated. Like the people that don't want to go into a work, fucking like go to the gym or anything like that, that just are walking around with a giant cloud over their head looking as though someone has died, but still having to participate in society because this is nothing that actually matters whatsoever. The second camp of people, blissfully unaware that anything has ever happened, just confused as hell as to why anyone seems upset. And then I want to say people that I truly uh, love and appreciate. These are the people who know enough about what has happened that like, My boss had to reach out to me for just a question about work the other day. And she knew enough to just preface the text with, hey, sorry about the Ravens yesterday. Anyway, like quick work question. All of those people are just like, know that something's going on and know to to give a little pat on the shoulder. And again, not to be melodramatic. It truly, I think, being in the city after something like that, it's, it's a fun kind of anthropological thing to observe. And that is 
what I've tried to fixate on to feel a little better in these last couple days. I will say among that last group, it is a very thin line. Like there are certain people within that group who I 100% respect. They are fully detached from it and are just generally unaware. But just on the other side of that line are the sports ball people who actually are the worst of all of the people. That's fair. There is the fourth camp we did not acknowledge, which are the deliberate antagonists. Fair point. Fair point. Yeah, the sports ball people who are like, oh, I'm sorry that your group of 11 large men that you've never met in your life didn't move the ball better than the other group of 11 large men. Like, those people, I wish that 11 large men would just beat the shit out of them. You serve no purpose in society. Like, (laughs) there's things that I don't like, but I understand that other people like them. Like, I don't know. I'm not particularly into, like, timepieces as films i'm it's not my thing but i understand why a certain person might and i'm not gonna like oh i'm sorry did the fake people from the time of far far time ago not do the thing that you wanted them to do it's it's just if you speak about anything simply enough it sounds very silly and stupid and it's very silly and stupid and yeah i i hate the sports ball people man i really do I hate them. Uh, I love the rest. And thank God that humanity has retained some beauty to keep me off the ledge here. Anyway, that's what's making memories for me right now. How about the two of y'all? So I have to apologize to Senegal, Iraq, and Julius Randle for jinxing them in my most recent making memories. I'm just going to stop talking about specific teams and players And instead, just focus on the good things of these tournaments. We get we have Angola in the quarterfinals. Ivory Coast, despite getting rid of their manager and not being able to loan another manager, did beat Senegal, the tournament favorite and who who had been dominant through group stages in penalties, meaning that once again, we will not have a repeat champion. And it's totally wide open. Like, Morocco lost to South Africa today, despite having made the semis of the World Cup a year and a half ago. So, wide open. I don't want to say any teams, because I will jinx them. I'm excited to see what happens. With the Asian Cup, we had South Korea score in the 99th minute to equalize against Saudi Arabia, the last minute of stoppage time. And then one on penalties to ensure that Jurgen Klinsmann didn't get immediately fired. And now we have Tajikistan versus Jordan, Australia versus South Korea, and Qatar versus Uzbekistan as three of the four quarterfinal matchups. So that'll be very exciting. Watch this space, watch those games. But the thing I really want to talk about is, have either of you been following this uh, Valieva doping scandal? I know two of the words that just came out of your mouth. So you might remember if I, once I start talking about it, Kamila Valieva is a Russian figure skater. And at mm-hmm. the 2022 Olympics, she was the youngest figure skater there. Prior to the competition, it was found out that she had tested positive for doping. But they decided to let her compete anyway while they went through the process. And people were pissed off at the time. They're also like, this girl is 15 years old. If she's being doped, it's almost certainly by her coaches. Like, why why are we going to put her out on the stage to compete while she's under this cloud? And 
during the women's competition. She was first after the short program, and then the, all this information came out, and there were questions about whether she should compete in the free skate. And she went out there with everyone, like, why is she even competing? And she fell four times, bawling her eyes out. And when she gets off the ice, you see her coach screaming at her. Like, absolute verbal abuse at this 15-year-old girl. Because she did so poorly, she fell out of metal contention, finished fourth, and people kind of forgot about the doping scandal. Until yesterday, when the International Skating Union banned her for four years for having tested positive after like these appeals had been heard and everything had been done. And as part so of this... All of her competitive career as a figure skater. Yes, all of, her, all of her competitive career. As a part of this, the team competition at the Olympics, Russia had won it with Valieva participating. But the IOC, because they knew that Valieva had doped, never gave Russia the gold medals. They kept the gold, silver, and bronze medals for the past two years because they didn't know if they would actually give them out. Based on the old story about Vladimir Putin and Robert Kraft's Super Bowl ring, not a bad move. When the ISU came out with this earlier, people who reviewed like the regulations said that, okay, there are essentially two things that can happen. Either they can disqualify the entire Russian team, or they can just disqualify Valieva's results, but it'll bump up everybody behind her, which would mean that it would be USA with the gold, Japan with the silver, Canada with the bronze. No, no matter what they chose, that would be the case, just whether Russia was fourth or disqualified. Then the IOC comes out earlier today and says, after this disqualification, USA gets gold, Japan gets silver, and Russia gets the bronze. And everyone was confused as to how this is possible. What does this mean? Russia said that they are going to sue to get their gold medals. They're, they're essentially saying that regardless of what you found against Valieva, she didn't actually dope. You guys are liars and evil. Give us our gold medals, which, whatever, it's Russia. There have been plenty of well-substantiated claims that the IOC bends over backwards to protect Russia, allowing them to, to compete under the ROC name despite their massive state-sanctioned doping scheme. But then Canada announced that they were going to appeal and sue as well. Well, I shouldn't say sue, but appeal and consider all options, which is legal parlance for probably suing, because they're saying IOC didn't apply their actual rules. They came out with the final scores. They didn't bump Canada up for any of the times where they finished below Valieva, but should have gotten an extra point for doing it. If they had done that for the two programs, Canada would have finished ahead of Russia by one point, getting the bronze. So now we have a situation where this 15-year-old girl doped, and we know it was because of the Russian Federation, who are still technically banned for already state-sanctioned doping, but the IOC is so afraid of doing more to punish Russia, more in quotations, that they decided to ignore their own rules to give Russia a bronze to keep Russia from attacking them more, but all it led to was Russia attacking them more anyway, and Canada getting pissed at not getting the medals that they deserve. So it is a massive shit show of the IOC's own making 
for not following any of their rules and trying to placate the unplacatable. But what really matters is USA gold medal, go fuck everyone else. <laughs> that was an interminably long setup to that punchline. It it was two years in the waiting. So, well, hey, I was gonna say I was hoping Diaz had a chaser, but Xavier, you chased your own shot all on your own by giving us a gold medal. I would appreciate it. Uh, which means yes, you can be bleak if you need to. I don't know what is it that's making memories for you right now. No, nothing bleak. Just an acknowledgement that. A little bit of hate is good. It's a good thing to have a little bit of hate. And I think that's best reflected in what I think is the best emerging rivalry in the NBA right now. Devin Booker versus Luka Doncic. This goes back a little ways. I think the most famously, people will remember in that game seven when the Mavericks destroyed the Suns uh, by like 40, 45 points. There's a famous screen cap of Devin Booker looking into the distance, which is like a haunted look on his face. And Luke is kind of ducking down under him and just smiling up at him a little bit. It's a, it's a great picture. And it's really just continued to blossom from there. And then in the past week, it's kicked off to an even higher degree. There was a game in Dallas. It was Phoenix versus Dallas. And there was a Phoenix Suns fan who was in attendance and... One of the most common criticisms of Luka Doncic, whether it's fair or not, is he's maybe retained a little bit of his baby fat. He's still a little pudgy out on the court. And the Suns fan, the only thing that he is known to have yelled and that we have confirmed evidence that he yelled was, hey, Luka, get on the treadmill. I think that's fairly innocuous. I think that's so funny. I think at a sporting event, when you are criticizing an athlete, criticizing their physical fitness, which is directly related... Yeah, I agree. It it is a slippery slope and it's a dangerous thing for us who will never ever appear on any of these courts to say what is and what is not acceptable to yell at these people. If we were granted that authority, I would say that, yes, I'm sorry, those ones permissible. The way I kind of look at it is it's like things that you can control, right? Making fun of Luca for being Slovenian, not cool. Making fun of Luca for not being an ideal shape as an athlete, cool. He can do something about that. I think it's in bounds. Luca didn't think it was in bounds. And what's not in dispute is that the fan made these comments. Luca wanted him to leave, and he then left. Whether he left of his own volition or he was kicked out, this is a little bit of a debate. But they asked Devin Booker about this in his postgame press conference. And first thing he does is he laugh and he said, look, obviously, you know, we don't want fans crossing lines. But if all he said was the treadmill thing, I think that's pretty hilarious. You know, one of you guys might have to get me his information. You know, I want to get him some tickets. You know, as long as he didn't say anything that crossed the line, you know, that's my guy. Luca insists that he was saying other things. There's really no evidence of it. I think Luca just got big mad and then got more mad after the fact. He definitely didn't want the reporter saying that he was mad. That was clear from his press conference. but. Reporters did say that he was mad. And I think it was the very next game that they both played after that. Luca goes for 73, shattering Joel Embiid's season record just like five days after Embiid set it at 70. He broke it. He broke it. Three points is not shattering at that point. Give Embiid a little more credit. No, fair. Um, yeah, and it was an and one. And Luca took a lot more threes to get there. That's what I think it was so impressive about him beats is it was just mid-range after mid-range. But Luca put up 73. Booker put up 62 the same night, albeit in a losing effort. And 
it's little doubt that, you know, they both wanted to show out immediately after that, immediately after, you know, they just had another incident in their long running history. And I just, we need to see the repeat in these upcoming playoffs. I'm not sure exactly how the seeding is going to work out in the West, but if we get a Western Conference semifinals matchup, I think it would even be a phenomenal Western Conference finals. But rivalries are what contribute a lot to sports being so great. I'm not going to say they're the main reason, but we love rivalries. And especially this modern era of NBA where so many players grew up playing against each other on the AAU circuit or... Uh, if it's at international tournaments where they're both playing on the U18 teams, like they all know each other now. And like they're by and large friendly, which like probably healthier for everybody involved, but it's not as good of a product. And I just want to see Devin Booker and Luka Doncic continue to talk reckless amounts of shit about each other. We need more rivalries in the NBA. And I'm looking forward to that one continuing to make some memories. The talk is not there yet, but I got to say, Wemby and Chet were going at each other in the last game. Like, it was not a competitive game by any means. But there was a six-minute stretch in the fourth where Wemby and Chet were fucking going at each other. Uh, and then also, if we had a nickel for every 62-point performance that a player had in a loss this year, we would have two nickels. Oh, Carl Anthony Towns. That's so funny. Like, Carl Anthony Towns had to have set the record for most points scored in a game in which you were also benched for your poor play. He has to be the first to get over 60 and still get benched. I can't think about that team without thinking about what Mahan just did with Anthony Edwards and how incredulous I was at that five-team trade where Mahan gave up Anthony Edwards and a lot for very little. It was so funny. So to kind of cliff notes what Xavier's referring to, there was a five-team dynasty basketball trade that went down in the league Xavier and I are in. Without getting too into the minutia, yeah, Mahan basically found things that he wanted from one team. Okay, this has value, but I don't want it. He found the third party, yada, yada, yada. And according to who you talk to in our league, he either ripped everybody off by being the middleman and only keeping the things that he wanted, or in Xavier's opinion, and like kind of frankly, in my opinion, a little bit too, fucked his whole team up just to say that he did a five-team trade. I think that's what happened. The best piece he got back is Zach Levine, whose knees are a ticking time bomb. The second best piece is probably Jalen Green, who's maybe a year away from being out of the rotation in Houston. And the third best piece he got is Jalen Suggs, who's like maybe a year away from being out of the rotation in Orlando. It's pretty fascinating. My personal involvement, I turned what I see to be a late 26 first round pick into a guaranteed top four pick in this year's draft. And what I did is I gave up. Jalen Suggs, who I just said, and Killian Hayes, who is probably going to be playing back in Germany in like a year or two. But, of course, if he is able to defy everyone's immediate reactions to this trade and and sneak into those playoffs, he could still go on some kind of crazy run. And at the risk of running on for too long here, Diaz, I do think that plays in well to uh, what our topic is this week. No, it's a, it's a great segue because, obviously... We love rivalries in sports, as I was just saying. What else we all love, the most unifying thing, I think, in sports is when we get a true underdog story. You know, if it's a double-digit seed going all the way to the Final Four in March Madness, or if it's some long-shot boxer scoring the unlikely knockout, almost universally, that is something that we all cling to. 
as sports fans. And I think it's because we kind of see a piece of ourselves in those kind of stories. You know, if only I got a shot like that, maybe I could have been great. Maybe I could have gone to the heights that we just saw this team go to. So in honor of that, what we want to talk about today is Cinderella stories, Cinderella guys. The sport that I chose for this was soccer. And if you're a soccer fan, I think there's no doubt what the greatest Cinderella story, if not of the 21st century, of just the 21st century, of all time, has to be Leicester City winning the Premier League title in 2015-2016. To kind of set the scene for the uninformed of this, in the previous season, Leicester had just been promoted up to the Premier League. They flirted with relegation, but they ultimately did make it through. But pundits pegged them for relegation going into the next season. This is partially just based on the quality of their play. Uh, It's also partially due to the tumult that surrounded the organization in the lead up to the 2015-16 season. There was a tape that leaked of three players for the Leicester City team on a sex boat in Thailand, which in and of itself were already in a gray area. But not only had they hired sex workers, they were then racially abusing these sex workers with some pretty disgusting slurs. Not great, very bad. And the other thing worth mentioning is that one of the players, James Pearson, was the son of the manager, Nigel Pearson, who had his own uh, problematic (laughs) past. Fucking coach's son getting busted on a Thailand sex boat. Yeah, the the nepotism was disgusting. The, The racial abuse was disgusting. It's a fucking horrible situation. So they got rid of these three players. They got rid of their manager. And, you know, these were contributing players as well. So we're taking a team that was already near the bottom of the table. We're taking out three rotation players because they're racist pieces of shit. We're getting rid of the manager because he was the father of one of those racist pieces of shit who may or may not have also been a racist piece of shit himself. It's all shitty in Leicester City. And in honor of that, the Bucks pegged them at 5,000 to 1 to win the Premier League entering the season. For context... You could get the exact same odds in that year on Elvis Presley being found alive. Just to put it into perspective. How long do the tickets last if you buy a ticket on Elvis being alive? Like, could se- feel- if you die, can you pass that ticket on to your child? I feel like you have to be able to. Like, to me, it's, it's one of those things that exists in perpetuity. Like, it's not a winner until it definitively becomes a winner. And it could definitively become a winner at any point. Like, so I'm, it's I'm Schrodinger's actually- ticket. Exactly. It's Schrodinger's ticket. That, that's the thing with all bets, Xavier. They're all, they're all theoretically <laughs> winners. I mean, that sounds like what Kayshawn Boot was probably thinking when he set 9,000 bets on an underage account at LSU. Hey, 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 hey. 8,950, okay? Let's not overcount, <laughs> okay? But, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's absurd. 5,000 to 1 odds. The appointment of manager Claudio Ranieri was for a lot of people seen as the catalyst of the team's turnaround. He kind of came in and, you know, in his first year, he leads this miraculous run. It's incredible. But to me, that makes him more of a savior and less of a Cinderella. If you look at that team, I think it's very obvious who has the most Cinderella story of any player on that team. So we got to talk about a guy who just three years prior to the start of this season was playing non-league football for a club called Fleetwood Town in the fifth tier of the English football pyramid. Lester then paid a record transfer fee of a million dollars for this player, which was a record for a non-league player. And looking back 
it could not have been a bigger bargain for that one million pounds. Today, we got to talk about the top goal scorer for the greatest Cinderella run in the history of soccer, Jamie Vardy. Jamie Vardy's having a party. Jamie Vardy's having a party. I'm already seeing Xavier's look of, hey, he's too good. But listen. It's literally playing right now. We we don't talk about him now. We don't remember him now. We established this. We did establish this, that it can be an active player. And he is maybe, not it's, maybe it's because of the fact that he always scored against Arsenal and then Arsene Wenger wanted him so badly he tried to get him and still couldn't and then kept only scoring every time he played Arsenal. That I think about Jamie Vardy many, many times. But go Xavier's ahead. Just I'm not going to dis- for his team I'm, being bad, Diaz. Don't listen to. I'm him. not going to discount Jamie Vardy now. I'm not going to. But I think of Jamie Vardy probably more often than the average person. No, that's totally fair. And you know, we'll see where it falls at the end of this discussion. But to start off, Jamie Richard Vardy was actually born Jamie Richard Gill on January 11th, 1987. Uh, he was born to his mother Lisa Cruz. And Father Richard Gills, uh, Cruz, C-R-E-W-E-S. I don't want you to think that there was like a a Spanish mother thing going on here. Just for clarity, C-R-E-W-E-S. It's not Jaime Vardy. Not not Jaime Vardy, tiene una fiesta. It's not that. Richard Gill was a little bit of a piece of shit. He walked out on the family shortly after Jamie's birth. Lisa would then get married to a man named Phil Vardy. And so Jamie was then raised under the Vardy family name. It's, uh, it's a working-class upbringing in England, in, in Sheffield. His mom, she was a receptionist at a legal office. His father was a construction worker, so like very much working-class family upbringing. He grew up a massive fan of Sheffield Wednesday, and uh, his dream coming up was to, to play for the club one day. He gets a chance at the age of 16 when he gets signed to a youth contract with Sheffield Wednesday. But after a short amount of time, they decide to move on from him. So he then signs with Stocksbridge Park Steels FC, which played in the eighth tier of the English football pyramid. And he signed to their reserve squad. He plugs away in reserves for three years before he finally gets a call up to the big league team at the age of 19. Now, the whole time he's on reserves, he doesn't get any contract. This is just three years of, like, goes to a nine-to-five, and then in his off time, he's practicing with the team. Finally gets a call-up. He's finally playing semi-professional football. Would either of you like to guess how much he was paid a week on his first professional contract? 50 quid. All right, 69. Why not? Uh, I don't know how quid translates to pounds, but it was 30 pounds a week was what he was okay. paid. Quid is pounds. Okay. So yeah, you were pretty close, but yeah, 30 pounds a week uh, on his first professional contract. And he quickly earned a reputation on the first team as just a pure classical goal scorer. And he had like a pretty simple and direct approach to the striker position. He was the fastest player on the pitch. He would time his runs perfectly and he's going to out hustle people to balls. And once he he gets on the end of it, he's usually going to finish pretty clinically. What makes this play style especially impressive for a player like Jamie Vardy is you might think that this type of cardio intensive play style is the result of very intense training and dedication to the craft and, you know, looking after his body and it couldn't be more the opposite. Jamie Vardy has a party. Jamie Vardy had a lot of parties throughout his entire life. He's uh, known as a hard partier. He often shows up to training hunt over 
He never worked out in a gym. Instead, he got all of his energy from our friend Xavier's favorite source of energy, big Red Bull drinker. And he also not as much a fan, uh, Xavier isn't at least, but Jamie Vardy was certainly a fan of smokeless tobacco. He has been introduced to me as a even more uncouth Gronk. Is that a, a pretty safe estimate? Where, where does he rank in terms of Gronk? Imagine if Gronk did not have the resources of coming from a football family to like have proper nutrition. Because like Gronk, by all accounts, great nutrition, like gym And rack. seems to like work out and at least trains to some extent. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Gronk was like the work hard, party hard style. Jamie Vardy was the party hard, fuck I have work style. I mean, it's a, but to play that intense, like while hungover and everything, pretty impressive. But, you know, his partying lifestyle didn't come without some of its drawbacks. It's, it's worth mentioning that in 2007, he got in a fight outside of a pub in his first year playing for Stocksbridge Park Steels. And as a result of that, he got six months probation and he had to be outfitted with a GPS monitor to wear for those six months. It was just part of his uniform at that point and if they had night games he wasn't really eligible for the team because of his curfew so suffered some punishment wasn't able to help the team but that's the consequence of living hard like Jamie Vardy does spent three total seasons playing for Stocksbridge Park Steels he scored 66 goals across 107 games and following that third season Halifax Town started taking notice Halifax Town is also non-league football but they're at least a couple years up from there. So they paid a transfer fee of 15,000 pounds to acquire the rights to Jamie Vardy. He would play one full season for Halifax and he'd lead the club with 25 goals and he helped them earn promotion up into the sixth tier of the English football pyramid. Early on in his second season, Fleetwood Town is playing in the fifth tier and they've taken notice of Jamie Vardy. So for an undisclosed fee, they would acquire his rights, and he would spend the majority of that season with Fleetwood Town. He, again, not only leads the club, but he leads the entire league with 31 goals across 36 appearances. In so doing, he helped to earn promotion for Fleetwood Town into league football for the first time in program history. And they were set to make their debut in League Two with Jamie Vardy leading the charge, but... Now Leicester City, who is competing in the championship at this time, they've taken notice of Jamie Vardy. So for the third season in a row, a team at a higher division is going to pay to acquire him. And they paid the transfer fee of £1 million to sign Jamie Vardy. And this is still to this day a record for a non-league player, which again in English terms means fifth tier or lower. And in general, so I'm... I'm impressed by any monetary record just because I always assume those are going to get smashed by inflation, if nothing else. Right. Yeah. And it's, and it's also just an unconventional approach. Like it's very rare that a championship team is looking at non-league sides for their reinforcements, but this is kind of like the track record he's had. It's like, okay, in, in the eighth tier, sure. He can score goals. And then when he's in the fifth tier, sure. He can score goals, but now we're going to see how he holds up. At the championship level. In his first season, it's not looking like it might have been the best investment for Leicester City. He kind of looks in over his head a little bit. The higher level of competition is very difficult for him to figure out. And at the end of the first season, he's questioning himself. He's actually thinking about retirement because 
he just doesn't think that he can sustain himself on this level. But he gets talked out of it by management, and he decides to keep going. Year two, turns it around in pretty big form. He scores 16 goals. Leicester would finish top of the table, and they would secure promotion up into the Premier League. And for his efforts, Vardy was named Player of the Year by the Leicester City Fan Association. So now we're talking about a guy that just three years prior is playing non-league football in the fifth tier. Just two years before that, so five years from where we are now, he's playing in the eighth tier of the English football system. There's only nine tiers. Like, it's about as low as you can get. We're essentially talking beer league level is what he's playing in. And then just five years later, he's playing at the highest level of football. Already, the story could end here, and it's an incredible story. His first season, we kind of have a repeat of that first season in the championship blues. He's really struggling to start the season. Uh, He would only score five goals across 34 appearances, but starts finding his form a little bit later in the season. April, he would score two game-winning goals, and for that, he would be nominated for the Premier League Player of the Month. Much like him finding his form late in the season, thanks to 22 points from April on, Leicester avoid relegation, and they secure their spot up in the Premier League for at least one more season as we go into that fabled 2015-2016 season. Now, we already talked about the racist sex boat scandal and all those pieces of shit. It is my journalistic duty to inform you that in a separate incident, Jamie Vardy was also racist to Asian people. Oh, no. That's, so, that, that's just wild because Lester was owned by the richest man in Thailand. Like, the person signing your checks is Asian. I mean, that matters, not one iota. But what should matter more is you would think if any team is going to have, like, handlers around the players all the time to try and avoid certain outcomes, it would be this one. You would think specifically this type of outcome against specifically this group of people. And yet, somehow, Jamie Vardy finds himself shit-faced outside of a casino, hurling racial abuse at a man of Eastern Asian origin. It's not a great look obviously the team finds him and uh, they give him a personal counselor but by almost all accounts this was kind of the rock bottom of Jamie Vardy's drunken partying lifestyle this was kind of his come to Jesus moment he would get married shortly thereafter and by most accounts settles down and reigns it in getting back to the play on the pitch 2015-16 season obviously magical for Leicester and it was also magical for Jamie Vardy he comes out of the gates on fire Leicester wins their first two matches of the season and by the time it's the end of September Jamie Vardy's already eclipsed his total of goals for the entire previous campaign he's already on seven in part thanks to a brace that he scored in a loss to Xavier's Arsenal it's worth mentioning that in this title season, Le- we beat Leicester them both lost- times. We That's beat them both say. times. Leicester lost three times all season, and two of them were in the two matches to Arsenal. So I'll never many forget Danny saying- Welbeck getting the header stoppage time uh, of the second game against them. And the call is Danny Welbeck scoring the most melodramatic title turning goal of his dreams, which did not age well. <laughs> 
in in hindsight, yeah, it ended up being melodramatic in that it didn't cause any drama whatsoever. But Jamie Vardy, as we said, comes out of the gates on fire. And going into the start of October, he starts a pretty impressive streak. He's going to score in every game in the month of October. And for those efforts, as well as with Leicester continuing to pile up the wins, he would win Premier League Player of the Month. He would eventually run the streak to 10 consecutive games, which tied the Premier League record set by Ruud van Nistelrooy of Manchester United. And it would then be in a game against Manchester United that Jamie Vardy would score once again to extend that streak to 11 and set the Premier League record for consecutive games scored with a goal. That's so obnoxiously perfect that it was against Man U. It's it's one of those things that like I feel like there's certain times in sports where like something happens that is just like very poetic and you're like, this is this is one of those seasons, isn't it? Like this is a special season. Um, and that could have been an early warning sign that it was going to be a special season for Leicester. Going into January and coming off of that incredible goal-scoring streak from Jamie Vardy, for which he was named the Premier League Player of the Month in November as well, which made him just the fifth player in the history of the league to win consecutive Player of the Month awards. Leicester found themselves in kind of an interesting position. They were... Top of the table, which nobody in a million years would have expected them to be. And when a smaller club is kind of outperforming expectations, they basically have two choices when we enter into that January transfer window. Do we take the profit that we could potentially get from selling on some of our players who are overperforming right now? Usually a smaller team might be in a more difficult financial situation. It's one of those things where... If you don't think you're going to keep this going for a title run, the smartest thing to do would be to sell your top performing players. But if you're a Leicester City, never in a million years did you even think you were going to get this far. You're kind of just playing with house money, being at the top of the table. So with that in mind, Claudio Ranieri would declare Jamie Vardy to be priceless. They would close the market, not hear any offers for him, and they were all eyes ahead on the potential to win a Premier League title. As part of a show of confidence from that, they gave him a new four-year contract, and the rest kind of proceeds without drama. They do drop that game to Arsenal because of the stoppage time goal from Danny Welbeck, as Xavier points out. But the, the biggest thing to point out is Leicester City still had two games to play when Chelsea and Spurs faced off. And with that... 2-2 result there, a draw for both teams. Leicester don't even clinch the title on the field. They are gathered I, I remember watching. watching it's like game. in a hotel room. Yeah they're, yeah, they're just in a hotel room together watching their fate be sealed. What an anticlimactic way for the most impossible title in the history of, if not only the Premier League, perhaps all of professional sports. No drama going into the final day. There is no two goals in stoppage time as there was for Man City. When they finally won their first title, it's just a bunch of dudes gathered together in a hotel room watching themselves become Premier League champions. The only drama kind of for Leicester the rest of the way was, is Jamie Vardy going to finish with the golden boot for the most goals in the Premier League for that season? He does finish one goal behind Harry Kane of Tottenham Hotspur, but... He does edge out Kane for the Player of the Year award in the Premier League. 
And let's remember, again, just four years ago, Jamie Vardy was playing semi-pro football. And now he is the player of the year for the team to have won the Premier League. There are like teachers who play soccer on the side that remember very vividly recently playing with the Premier League player of the year. Just four years ago. And it, and I'm sure it's one of those things where they'll bring it up in class and, and their students are like, oh, yeah, sure, Mr. Roberts, you held Jamie Vardy off the goal sheet. I'm sure you did. I'm sure you've like met him. Remarkable. And I, I kind of a thing that is only really possible within soccer because I think like almost any other professional sport, there's just not going to be eyeballs on a person playing in that low of a tier to even get them the chance. And think about how many consecutive times he had to continue to perform on an elite level, even within the non-league pyramid. Like he goes from, from eighth tier to fifth tier of non-league is a gigantic leap, even within itself. And then we're talking all the way up to the Premier League. It's, it's truly absurd. One thing that I didn't mention before this season, Jamie Vardy made his first international appearance for England as well. So what an incredible honor for him. His international career, not super notable. I wish there was some crazy goal he scored in the quarterfinal to help England advance. He doesn't get a lot of minutes in the team. He was named to the 2018 World Cup roster, but following that, he asked Garrett Southgate, hey, like, I don't feel like I'm a fit for the style you want to play. Like, if you get a crazy amount of injuries, sure, I'll play again, but I don't think this is the fit for me. But nonetheless, Jamie Vardy, English international player. Incredible. It's funny thinking about Vardy compared to the most recent person to make that kind of jump from non-league to England international, Ivan Tony. Where Ivan, you know, he, very very similar in that it might have been some personality issues that you know were the reason why it took a little while to get up to where you're at, but still really really talented. If you take away all of the betting and cheating, look, Newcastle legend Ivan Tony has never done anything wrong except for bet on uh, Newcastle. He said nothing games, wrong. He said nothing wrong. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with supporting the lads. I do, like, and this is a different conversation, but if you bet on your own team, there should be nothing wrong with that. There should absolutely. be absolutely nothing wrong with that. Any other team based on inside information or against their own team, I get why that's fucked. I think if you bet on your own team, like, come on. But we digress. Leicester wins the Premier League. Jamie Vardy is Premier League Player of the Year. It's an incredible story. And because of them winning the Premier League, they get to play in the Champions League the next year. For a little bit, it looks like, holy shit, like, Leicester's not going to do this shit again, are they? They advance out of the group stage into the round of 16, where they beat Sevilla. They advance to the quarters. Jamie Vardy does score against Atletico Madrid, but they do fall 2-1 on aggregate. It's a bit of a step back for them in the Premier League that season. They're playing a lot more matches, obviously, playing in the Champions League as well, not to mention the League Cup competitions. Uh, So they do finish 12th. Vardy falls back, only scores 13 goals that year. And just like kind of a quick run through of the rest of his career up to this point. The following season, Leicester would finish ninth. They don't get European football, but what they do get is the goal of the year, as declared by the Premier League for Jamie Vardy. He has a left-footed, which is his weak foot, volley off a pass that 
kind of like goes over his shoulder. So like imagine a wide receiver going for a fly route, tracking a ball over their shoulder. And then instead of catching it, they put their left foot laces right through the ball and volley it and get one of the craziest goals you've ever seen. That's kind of the setup that we're going for here. On March 9th, 2019, he would score his 100th goal for Leicester. For the 2019-2020 campaign, which was famously interrupted by COVID, um, so a little bit of a break there, but when you combine all the games together for the 2019-20 Premier League season, Jamie Vardy's 23 goals were enough to secure the golden boot for him. For the first time in his career, he leads the Premier League in goals, and in so doing, at the age of 33, he also became the oldest player in league history to win the golden boot. That's pretty fucking cool. And again, with his high-intensity lifestyle, for which he does not train enough, he's still, at the age of 33, producing like this. You you have claimed that the high-intensity lifestyle toned down a little bit. I was told that the dial had been slightly turned. It's, he still drinks Red Bull. He's just not adding vodka to it. That's the only – he's reining it in a little bit. His kidneys have like five more years tops. When, when, it, when it happens, it's going to happen. But so far, it hasn't happened. Uh, so far, it's still going well for him. 2021 was probably the, the last crowning moment of Jamie Vardy's professional career. Lester went on a cup run. They made it all the way to the FA Cup final in 2021. And – By making the start in the cup final, Jamie Vardy had already set another record. He became the first player in the history of the FA Cup to appear in each round of the FA Cup. Premier League teams don't enter until the third round. Championship teams don't enter until the second round. And the first round is your lower level and non-league teams. So because of his origins, he is the only player in the history of the FA Cup to have played one game in each round of the cup. And there's a happy ending. It's not because of Jamie Vardy. He's not involved on the goal. But thanks to Yuri Tielemans ripping it in in the second half, Leicester take the FA Cup 1-0 over Chelsea. And now Jamie Vardy has just about every piece of silverware that there is for a player to win in the English soccer system. He's won a Premier League title. He's won an FA Cup. He's won Player of the Year. He's won the Golden Boot. And it's a good thing that he has accrued all those honors because it's starting to slow down a little bit now. 22-23, he appeared in 37 games of the 38 that Leicester played in the Premier League, but he only scored three goals. And Leicester likewise saw their historic run in the Premier League end as they were relegated back to the championship on the final day. So far this season... His first back in the championship. He scored six goals in 19 appearances, nine starts. He's playing about 40 to 50 minutes a game. But at the age of 37, I think we could probably measure his remaining playing career in months instead of years. So I think we're winding down towards the end of his career. But Jamie Vardy's legacy is one, according to all the pundits, the He brought a non-league football playing style up to the highest levels of the Premier League. Everybody notes, you know, when he first came up, so raw, he's so aggressive. And what's most impressive is that while becoming a much more refined player with his finishing ability, he still retained that same aggression that made him great. To go from his first professional contract paying him a wage of just 30 pounds a week to being 
probably the most decorated player of Leicester City and to be the face of their run to winning the most miraculous title in Premier League history. It's incredible. And to, to maintain that level of passion that he had at the beer league level while playing in the Premier League, he's the Cinderella guy of the biggest Cinderella run in the history of the sport. And while Xavier is personally aggrieved by what he did to Arsenal, look, he did a lot to Newcastle too. I don't think that should get in the way of us recognizing one of the greatest Cinderella guys in the history of football. I mean, as a player, Jamie Vardy, there's there's no real argument. One thing that is interesting, Leicester are 10 points clear at the championship right now. There is a chance we see Jamie Vardy in the Premier League again next year, probably well, off the right. bench. But if they go up, I think Jamie Vardy stays for one more year, almost certainly as a bench player, but he's still scored six goals in the championship this year. Like, he can get you some right. goals off the bench. Right. The, the thing that's impressive to me, I think, is like, you would think, okay, high-intensity player, like, the intensity is going to get dialed back as he gets older. And instead, what it is, it's like, no, he's not playing half as intense for just as long. He's playing just as intense for half as long is kind of the way that they're going with it. And look, at some point, his hamstrings might just simply separate from the bone. But until then, he's going to keep running his ass off. And I mean, yeah, his, his play style is exactly, it's the, it's the most guy style of striker that I think there is. There's no like, fancy dribbling or clinical. It's just, I'm going to beat you to the spot and then I'm going to put the ball on the back of the net. It's, uh, it's a throwback to, to the golden years of English football. That's right, proper football, in it? In it. Well, and part of the English football movement as well, he's there trying to bring it home. Um, I'm, if you don't mind, going to build off that idea of bring it home for a second though, because... We all like to laugh a little bit when England makes a run and then falls short in the World Cup after we all hear about how it's coming home this time. There, you know, is only one opportunity every four years for us to do that. There was another thing that we got to all laugh about England failing to bring it home for a long, long time that happened every year at Wimbledon, which represents the center of the grass tennis world at the very least. And England as a whole also kind of represents that. Very much was that back in the 30s. 30s is when we have this guy, Fred Perry, who, as part of this just dominant four-year run, like fucking slaying in every single one of the finals, he is also winning three straight Wimbledons in that time, from 34 to 36. Now, I want to clarify that in the decades to come, plenty of women will make the finals, and plenty of British women will win the finals. We have four specifically in the next couple decades, in 37, 61, 69, nice, and 77. But after 1938, following Fred Perry, a guy named Bunny Austin makes the finals, loses. And then no one else from Britain, no other man reaches the men's singles in Wimbledon for decades. So we get into the 70s, we're going on just about four decades without, again, even a finalist here in this most British of tournaments. And this is not for lack of trying because they're trying to prop up like that next great British player after next great British player. There've been so many of these next great British hopes. And I want to talk about one of them today, born in 1974 on the 6th of September, which if you write out the British style is 6-9. My guy today, Tim Henman. Tim H-E-N-M-A-N. H-E-N-M-A-N. And it's Timothy Henry Henman, if we're being formal about it. Uh, and he is going to be one of these great hopes 
there's a pretty good reason early on. He has an amazing pedigree. His dad, Anthony, was like a good amateur player. His mom, Jane, played at junior Wimbledon. But now let's take it a generation back from Jane. Both of her parents, Henry and Susan, so Tim's grandparents, played at Wimbledon, including as mixed doubles partners at time. And you go back even further, he has a great-grandfather that played at Wimbledon and a great-grandmother that played at Wimbledon and was apparently the first ever woman to serve overhand at that same tournament. So if you were trying to, like, puppy mill breed the perfect most British tennis player that you could, Tim Henman's got a pretty fucking good pedigree. When he's young, he lives in just about the most British name you could possibly find, Weston-on-the-Green. It's about a 500-person town in Oxfordshire. They have a grass lawn court. Jane gets him and his siblings out there as soon as they can hold a racket. And Tim is certain from an early age he's either going to be a pro tennis player or a pro golf player. Those are the only two dreams he will possibly entertain by his own admission does exactly enough at school to get by. He has no interest in anything other than originally some golf, but pretty much as he gets into his double digit years, tennis, tennis, tennis. When we've talked previously about Andre Agassi and Monica Seles, we talked about Nick Boliteri. He was this very rich guy in America who started what has now become IMG Academy. Britain also has crazy rich people. And one of them is this financier named Jim Slater. Tim, he is 11 already by this point because of his pedigree, because of the family connections, has been training with a lot of really good pros. But at this point, after graduating from the Dragon School in Oxford, just really laying the British on their heavy, and he gets picked up by Jim Slater's Slater Squad. That's a good name for a squad. I like alliteration. It's an easy one. There were a couple times where I was like writing this. I was like, oh, I should just, you know, initial that so I don't take up so much more time. And I was like, oh, no, I should definitely not say that he's a member of the SS at any point. Uh, He is instead a member of the Slater squad. Slater has basically the same idea as Nick Boliteri. Start younger than everyone else is starting. Make sure that by the time they can play with the LTA, the Lawn Tennis Association, which governs all of that here in England, uh, they're really, really good. This is maybe the first kind of obstacle we face for Henman because at 11, he's at the very edge of what the Slater squad considers quote unquote young. Of the original eight, most of them lean towards the eight-year-olds, these first eight members of the Slater squad. And honestly, amongst them, he's fine. He's not bad, but he's very much not the star. He is described as like the most hardworking, but that's the kind of thing you say about someone that does not have the natural ability at that age. So he's just, you know, this super kind of coach's kid that does not have any overwhelming physical skills. So he gets really good at his serve and volley game, uh, which is a more tiring style. Then he gets diagnosed with a bone and joint disease, inflammation condition called osteochronditis. And this knocks him out of junior tournaments for two years. So we've got a little bit of a road bump for this kid who had been born with a silver spoon in his mouth. Broken bones, man. Joints and bones are terrible, and I want to take a moment to draw a point here. With the Disney Cinderella, she clearly has a privileged initial upbringing. Like, we are told that the estate that she grows up in is the one that belonged to her father and mother, and they've both died, and now the stepmother has it. But, like, that is somewhat historically representative of the time there. That stepmother did not own that property initially. So, I think he's now started to have enough bad things happen to him that he's being brought low. 
being hurt by these circumstances regarding injuries. He's disagreeing about his role in the Slater squad. They kind of just want him to be a doubles player. They don't think he has what it takes for singles. And so he drops out of there, drops out of high school, the age of 16, tells his mom, look, fuck this. I just want to play tennis. And he joins the LTA and begins his singles career in 1991. Initially, it kind of looks like the Slater squad might have been right. He is a pretty bad initial singles record, and he's doing a lot better in doubles with a former teammate from the Slater squad, Jamie Delgado. But then in 93, grows another inch, it's like an 18-year-old, and he packs on two whole stone as he gains some weight. He starts out in 774th that year but finally starts to reach a couple quarterfinals and some lower British competitions, gets all the way up to 415th by the end of that year. The next year, starts as many Brits have done throughout history. He rampages through India and builds off that strong start in the other hemisphere to eventually qualify for his very first Grand Slam in Wimbledon, though he does lose in the first round. In the midst of this step forward, unfortunately, he breaks his ankle. His joints continue to get beaten up by this tiring style that he has because he just does not have the gifts otherwise to overcome it. And so he's out for a couple months, but 95 remains pretty positive, especially in these lawn tournaments, these very British games like the Manchester Open, the Queen's Cup, and Wimbledon. He wins his first match in the singles tournament in Wimbledon before he loses to Pete Sampras. And with his doubles partner, Jeremy Bates, he gets a little bit mad. I don't know if you guys have ever seen this video, but there is a famous Tim Henman appearance. This is his first time now in Wimbledon, the doubles tournament. He hits a ball away in anger. And unfortunately, the ball that he hits in anger does hit a ball girl and knocks her to the ground. And he and his teammate actually do get disqualified for this. Probably the thing that should happen, but it's a little unfortunate for both Tim and Jeremy there. However, goes to Atlanta in the 96 Olympics. Oh, he still has just a little bit of status left to be able to compete in that. And so now he's got a couple of these Wimbledon appearances. He's got that silver medal from the Atlantic Games. He's reached a high enough stature that the Brits can start putting their faith in him. And he begins the Sisyphean task of trying to win a major tournament on British soil. Because not only are they doing that in Wimbledon, not doing that in the Queen's Cup. They're doing the Manchester Open. Manchester Open sounds big. Like the major tournaments just continue to be places where the Brits who feel as though like they are the originators more or less, or at least the guardians of this form of tennis just getting shut out over and over and over again. We start to get into his peak as we reach, by the way, just about 60 years since the last men's finalist in Wimbledon in 1998. And he breaks into the ATP top 10. He reaches the semifinals. The first time before losing to Pete Sampras again. This is his third straight year for the record qualifying for all Grand Slam tournaments. And it is his first year ever qualifying for all of the ATP Master Series tournaments. So he's doing pretty well. Finishes in the top 10 as seventh. 1999 is a little bit, but step back. Only three quarterfinal finishes in the ATP Masters altogether after two semis the year before. And he drops to 11th overall. Does make the Queen's Cup final where he loses to Pete Sampras. And then in Wimbledon, he again does the best of all the Grand Slams that year. He reaches the semis where he loses to Pete Sampras once again. I just want to go back really quickly yes. to the disqualification incident in the doubles match at Wimbledon because I, I went on YouTube to look this up because I got to see if it was worthy of disqualification. Maybe, maybe not. 
but I do need to point out an incredible YouTube comment. Sometimes YouTube comments are great. Uh, this was left by 24 Magic Carrot. In Henman's defense, we know it wasn't intentional. He never hit anywhere he was aiming his entire career. <laughs> That's tough but fair. He's in a good stretch here right now. We're, we're in a good no, stretch. Course. Look, Luca probably doesn't really need to get on a treadmill. This comment isn't necessarily accurate, but good banter doesn't have to be accurate. And I just need to shout out 24 Magic Carrot. That made me giggle. But it's a 24 karat comment. We're in the semifinals. Well, in 2000, we're not in the semifinals. In 2000, he actually misses the quarterfinals in all of the Grand Slams. He does make a finals in a, a Masters game in Cincinnati. So he gets back up to 10. But this is going to set us up for 2001. And this is the run that the Brits are really going to convince themselves is going to be the one. So again, we're in 2001. His season goes this way. He struggles on the hard courts. Bounces back a little bit during clay season. which is kind of the second ranked 11th. So he's dropped the tiniest bit, but he's gotten back up to 11th as he reaches grass season. He reaches the Queens Club final and he does not lose to Pete Sampras. He does lose to a different guy, Australian Leighton Hewitt. Crocky. 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 But that's okay. We don't care too much about that. We care about Wimbledon time. And the Brits are feeling good. They feel like this is the guy that is going to bring it home. Runs into a tiny bit of turbulence in those preliminary rounds. In the fourth round, takes full five sets to knock out Todd Martin, an American. But Britannia prevails, sets him through to the quarterfinals. And here he's going to defeat a young Roger Federer, who very importantly, beyond just being Roger Federer, had just beaten Pete Sampras. Which means now, we do not have Pete Sampras to face for our boy Tim Henman coming up. The bracket is starting to turn out the way you need to. And I think that's a really like important aspect of a lot of the Cinderella runs that we see. In order for things to progress long enough for a Wichita State or an FGCU to get into the tournament, a couple things in the tournament, a couple other upsets sometimes need to happen around there to kind of benefit. So now we've got this Cinderella run. We've got this kid born with a silver spoon. He's a British scion, laid low by injuries by tempered expectations from his trainers. He's, for all this time, just kind of been a stepping stone. This is his run, though. This is the one where the seeding's going to work out, and a not-top guy is going to catch all the right breaks. And just as you said, Diaz, when you let this in, he's going to unite people. He's going to bring all of Britain behind him as he gets the island cheering for him, heading into his third try, third time's the charm, here in the semifinals of Wimbledon. But the most important aspect of any Cinderella story, the clock does eventually have to strike midnight. The bracket looked like it was going his way because the person he has to face is Goran Ivanashevich. He has made three finals in Wimbledon in his career, 92, 94, 98. But he had fallen as low as 129th in the rankings that started this year getting just a wildcard invite to Wimbledon. Henman, here in the semis, leads two sets to one. But that final one of those sets there, it went on for so long that the day's play had to be canceled due to darkness. And so all of Britain, standing beside him, has to wait a night. And the next day, Ivanashevich, he evens it up. And then rain delays push this match to a third day here in Wimbledon, still just in the semis. Henman, as we mentioned, 
It's a serve and volley style thing. And Ivanashevich, that's definitely a part of his play style. He also holds several records on the tour for his aces. There are several games in his career where at no point does anyone even return a ball to him in a game. And so getting all of this rest, getting this chance to recharge, being someone that has the physical tools to win and is not having to deal with the normal endurance issues, Ivanashevich eventually is favored by this and he out Cinderella's Tim because he is going to go on to become the first ever wildcard Wimbledon winner. And I'm going to take a second just to let you know that when we started this category, originally I was going to go with our boy Goron over here. There are some excellent nuggets about him. He used to just scream at himself in the middle of matches between games as motivation, like not screaming at anyone else, not screaming at his opponents, not screaming at the fans, just screaming at himself. Uh, He met his first wife because he saw her on the cover of a Cosmo magazine and just decided to find her number and reached out to her that way. So, hey, shoot your shot. He did also defraud his hometown of just an enormous amount of money to build a villa that he never once lived in and cleared a bunch of green space from that town for a tennis academy that never, ever got built. So, so that's he's Kurt the- Schilling. Yeah, like he eventually ruined all the goodwill that he had. And also, like I said, I don't know that he can be a true Cinderella because the bell never strikes. The carriage never turns back into a pumpkin. He ultimately wins and Tim does not. And this is devastating to the British people. He's had the full weight of their expectations on him. And if you think I'm exaggerating that, CNN reports that there had been people during these delays camped out at the Wimbledon ticket office for hours upon days at this point to try and get tickets to the finals until Tim Henman loses and like dozens of them just leave the line. They have no interest now because there is not a Brit in the finals anymore. And it's hard to not feel like, you know, that's the chance. But next year, there's a little bit of life. He starts with the Queen's Cup and he makes the finals again, where he again loses to Leighton Hewitt. That's all right. We're going to get another golden opportunity here at Wimbledon. Because here in this tournament, we're going to, again, get those breaks we need. Sampras loses in the second round. That's his last ever Wimbledon match. Agassi who's another big player here, also loses in the second round. And Federer loses in the fourth round. So by the time we get to the quarterfinals, 15 of the 17 top seeds have already been eliminated. Henman is one of those that remains. And for the fourth time in five years, the Brit reaches the semis, where he unfortunately faces the only other one of those top 17 seeds, Australian Leighton Hewitt. Crocky! Crocky! And I'd like to tell you that this was another back and forth match that lasted several days. He dispatches him in three straight sets. There's no drama whatsoever. It is, you know, four falls of Buffalo at this point. You convince yourself the third time's going to be the charm. It isn't. And then you still get one more the next year. And for the fourth time in five years, he reaches the semis and loses. For the fourth time in five years, he not only loses, but loses to the eventual champion in Wimbledon. It's a brutal end for this chapter of his life. It's not the full end for Hedman. He does reach the Indian Wells finals later that year. Loses to Roger Federer. He does, in the next couple of years, win a Paris Masters. This is his biggest, most prestigious win. It's his only, like, Masters win on the ATB tour the whole time. Uh, it's an indoor carpet surface, though. So, like, eh. And then finally... In 2006, after twice during this point making the quarterfinals in Wimbledon, but losing at that point and losing to Leighton Hewitt a couple more times in the Queen's Cup, 
2006, he loses in the second round at Wimbledon to Roger Federer. He loses in the second round at the U.S. Open to Roger Federer. And he goes east, tries to recapture some of that magic one last time from a decade ago, battles his way all the way to the final of Tokyo's AIG Open, where he loses once again to Roger Federer. And worst of all this year, he loses his top British tennis player ranking. And Andy Murray has stepped up as the number one British tennis player. And Andy Murray, just a few years later, is going to finally do what Tim Henman never could. Really, Tim Henman is the last failed great British hope before they finally get the one that breaks through with Andy Murray. Tough spot to be in for Tim, I think, after that 80-year drought finally gets snapped. He's on hand for it because after some smaller camps and some international play, he decides to turn to commentary for Wimbledon as well. And he eventually becomes a board member for the All England Lawn Tennis and Croquet Club, which is the governing body there, because he was born into it. He was molded by it, but it, it is not his ally, nonetheless. He just can't get away from it. You know, he is a lot like American League teams now with the Astros. He's a lot like AFC teams now with Kansas City. Like, you just exist at the wrong time. Sorry, man. Time and time again, it was Sampras. It was Hewitt. It was Federer. There was always someone there. And even in those magical moments where it seemed like things might just align as a nation got behind him, the clock always eventually struck midnight on my Cinderella guy, Tim Henman. Always a king's maker, never a king. I like that way of putting it. He... he I don't think there was anyone happier than Tim Henman when Andy Murray finally broke through and won it. It really feels like it's gotta suck to be the last person everyone put their hopes in before the person that really does it. Like that's the thing that that sunk in for me more than anything. And then someone did achieve everything that everyone had ever put their hopes in for you. And you also had to be not to get back to cucking as we talked about a few weeks ago, but you did have to be on the commentary team talking about Andy Murray accomplishing the thing you were never able to accomplish. He's the DeMar DeRozan of English tennis. That's perfect. That is fucking perfect. (laughs) You got close. You almost, but you never. And then Kawhi Leonard is Andy Murray. That's, that's really what this whole thing is about. But Tim Hedman, a very exciting guy, a Cinderella story that never quite made it to the glass slipper. Xavier, I'm wondering if you might have something that might fit that glass slipper. Yeah, I have someone that I think you're both going to really like. There is a guy whose entire life is made up of Cinderella stories. Some of it is scarcely believable and... You know, there were a lot of things that I had to cross-reference because when there's a life like this, it's very easy for there to be exaggerations. And for the most part, everything that I'm about to say has been confirmed by multiple sources. So I think it's very fair to say that this person, their life was just a series of never-ending Cinderella stories. And that person is Wataru Wat Misaka. Watt was a Nisai, which is a second-generation Japanese-American, you know, born to immigrants straight from Japan. I only just this week learned that there are, like, the different terms for And I guess, like, I knew that Mestizo and stuff existed. Like, I remembered seeing the charts of that in colonial America. But, yeah, I guess I just had never thought that they, they had that. So I'm, 
I'm glad that I know what you're talking about. Yeah, Nisai are second generation. There's Isai, which are first generation immigrated from Japan. Sansai, who are third generation and so on and so forth. But what? Nisai, both parents from Japan. And he is born on December 21st, 1923 in Ogden, Utah. Uh, said his parents, Tatsuyo and Fusaichi, both immigrants. And at this time, Japanese people were not allowed to own property in Utah. So Misaka family lived in the basement of Tatsuyo's barbershop uh, in a very impoverished part of Ogden. Due to racism, Watt was not allowed to participate in standard sports leagues growing up, so he was only able to compete in a few Nisai leagues for baseball and basketball, the two things that he really liked to do. However, Ogden High School did not have segregated sports, so Watt was able to play for their basketball team once he got there. And he helped lead the basketball team to state championship in 1940 and a regional championship in 1941. This almost never happened because Watt's father died in 1939. And his mother was set on moving the family back to Japan to have a support system. She was all ready to get them on a boat back to her homeland of Hiroshima before Watt pledged to get a farm job and essentially paid for his family to stay in Utah while in high school playing basketball. So, like, not to obviously minimize... The worst thing that human beings have, like, ever done to people that isn't the Holocaust is dropping atomic bombs on them. That being said, do you think he said, I told you so at any point? I don't think so, and you'll find out why later. After high school... Watt was able to attend Weber College, uh, now Weber State, famously Damian Lillard School, but at this point it was a JUCO. And in two years, he led them to back-to-back junior college championships. He was named MVP of the 1942 JUCO postseason tournament and was named Weber College Athlete of the Year in 1943. And as we know, at this time... Japanese people in America were being interred in concentration camps. Because Watt's family lived in Utah and not one of the coastal states, they were not forcibly relocated, but there were internment camps in Utah, specifically the Topaz War Relocation Center. So people that Watt knew who had moved to California during his childhood were put in concentration camps in the state that Watt was now living in and going to school in. So, very difficult time for a Japanese-American or any Japanese person living in America. Despite this, in 1943, Watt enrolls at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, and he joins their basketball team. Because of the massive decline in college athletes due to World War II mobilization, Utah's team was made up of pretty much all freshmen, like 18-year-olds, who weren't old enough to be drafted, And people like Watt, who were not eligible to fight in the war, because at that point, the U.S. blocked any Asian Americans, not just Japanese Americans, but any Asian Americans, from being drafted because, you know, they weren't sure about their loyalties and didn't want them fighting in the war. 
Utah couldn't even use their own home gym that year because the Army had appropriated it. So during this season, you know, despite all of these setbacks, and despite Watt's small size, I want to point out, he was 5'7". He was never taller than 5'7", so he was always one of the shortest, if not the shortest, person on the court. But he quickly gains a reputation as a phenomenal defender, like one of the best anyone has ever seen. And during this 1943-44 season, Utah, they go 18-3 and during the regular season, playing where they can. They only actually play three colleges. The rest of their games are against military divisions or corporations. Uh, as an example, their last five games of the regular season were losses against Salt Lake Air Base and Dow Chemical and wins against Bushnell Hospital, Idaho State, and then a revenge match against Salt Lake Air Base. <laughs> the revenge match against Salt Lake Air Base got me. I, I, I used to love all the teams because it's like, yeah, like you'd have like the Coast Guard had a team, like several different Merchant Marine Academies. And yeah, like they were, we're throwing in a couple like random corporations too. We should allow corporations to field teams against collegiate players again. Let's just, just like, fuck it. So just we're merge the econ league with college sports? Look, we're, we're in late stage capitalism. Let's see how weird and fucked up we can make things before it all comes crashing down. Yeah, I mean, well, despite that depressing uh, view of the world, and despite this depressing, schedule... I say, I, look, it's, it's a fuck it, we ball approach to late stage capitalism, Xavier. That's, that's uh, my approach. Fair. Well, despite this schedule, Keith Brown, who was the team's graduate manager had taken newspaper clippings of all of their performances and sent them weekly to Ned Irish, who was the president of Madison Square Garden. So they do get offered the eighth and final bid to the NIT this year. NIT, still the bigger tournament than the NCAAs. They also get invited to the NCAAs because the NCAAs needs people. But the NIT was offering more money and had more prestige. So they take a train all the way from Utah out to New York to play at Madison Square Garden, the NITs. First round matchup is against Kentucky. And they lose 46-38. So Utah's players, they go back to their hotel, and they're like, all right, well, at least we'll get to explore the city a little bit before we go back to Utah. And then Coach Vidal Peterson wakes up his players. Two starters on Arkansas were injured in a car accident. Their station wagon had broken down, and while attempting to fix it, another car rammed into them. It severely injured two players and killed an assistant coach. This led to Arkansas withdrawing from the NCAA tournament. The NCAA tournament needed a new team and knew that Utah had just lost the NIT, and they had already asked them if they had wanted to participate, so they give them another call. Coach Peterson is like, ah, I don't think it's that good of an idea. Quote, we've made a good showing here and we've made some money. Now we have a chance to see New York. What do you think? In their 2 a.m. meeting, the players unanimously voted to get right back on the train and go to Kansas City, Missouri to play in the NCAA tournament. So just a couple days later, after this long train ride, they get a first round matchup against home favorite Mizzou. And they beat them by double digits, 45-35. This leads to a semifinal game against Iowa State. At this point, Iowa State had 
armed service programs on campus. So they had servicemen on campus, which meant that players from other colleges who had been assigned to the services in Iowa State got to then play for Iowa State. So they just had like an all-star team of other schools. They were such a massive favorite that Reeves Peters, who was the tournament director for the NCAA, came to the team beforehand, specifically to graduate manager Brown. And before the game explained that the winner was going to have to catch a New York-bound train at midnight to get to the final at Madison Square Garden, where the NCAA tournament final was. And because they assumed that Iowa State was going to win, he had already checked Iowa State out of their hotel rooms and asked if it would be okay if he left all of the Iowa State players' luggages in Utah's players' rooms. Utah wins 40-31 with Watt leading the team in scoring. How are you not going to win after that fucking disrespect for the commissioner to come in and say that shit? That would light such a fucking fire under my ass. It reminds me of, there was a clip of Bill Belichick, and this gets back to fucking people claiming underdog status when they have no fucking right doing so. But Bill Belichick before the Eagles Super Bowl in 2004, the first time that they met, when the Patriots did win. He went over the plans parade route in Philadelphia at a team meeting. And like, yes, great motivational tactic. But fuck you. Like, obviously the city has a plan in place in case the Eagles win the fucking Super Bowl. And Bill Belichick fucking used that. But yes, great motivational tactic. And without doubt, powered the Patriots victory and the Utes as well. They got on the train to New York City. And this set the stage for a title match against Dartmouth. Much like Iowa State, most of Dartmouth's players were servicemen who had started at different colleges and they already had significant tournament experience. Dartmouth, you know, as an Ivy, was a very desired posting spot for servicemen, and so they got a lot of the best players. Again, considered a massive favorite. The morning of the final, Pete Couch, who was Utah's assistant coach, overheard a bunch of Dartmouth players talking at breakfast. They suggested that they should play an intra-squad scrimmage before the game. That way the fans would at least get to see their money's worth. Assuming that, hey, you know, at least like a 5v5 from us Dartmouth players would be entertaining. This is now Jake Mintz hearing the attaboy from the Atlanta locker room and broadcasting that to Philadelphia. Elite. The game starts and it's a defensive struggle. No team leads by more than four. With a minute left, Utah's up 36-32. Dartmouth scores, gets it back, hits a buzzer beater to tie it. It goes to overtime. But Utah clamps down, restricts them to just four points in overtime, and wins 42-40. to To this day, this is Utah's only NCAA tournament championship in basketball. And one thing that's very interesting about this time in basketball is that you could waive fouls. Like, if you were fouled and didn't want to shoot a free throw, you can waive it. So when Utah was up 36-32 in the last minute of regulation, they were fouled multiple times, but thought they had a better shot holding on to the ball than just taking the free throws. Which I just think, wow, imagine if... NBA right now, you could say, no, fuck it. I don't want to take the free throw. Just give me the ball back. Ben Simmons would be a champion by now. 
So after this championship, uh, the New York newspapers arranged for a Red Cross benefit game, also an MSG, between the NCAA champions and the NIT champion, St. John's. A crowd of 18,000 fills the garden, and they raise $35,000 for the Red Cross, and Utah wins 43-36 over NIT champion St. John's, making everyone declare them truly the best team in the country. The New York newspapers call them the Blitz Kids. Hey guys, there is there are some things going on here. I know I said something stupid at the start of this, but I'm saying that several decades removed. I would not try to... Um, I'm not going to defend what New York newspapers were saying in the 40s. They have a little brief tour of New York because everyone wants them on their shows now, but they do have to get back to Utah. After the tournament, Watt and one of his teammates, Masataro Tatsuno, who you might imagine is also Japanese, and who didn't actually play in the tournament because Utah could only afford to send nine players all the way from Utah to New York and then Missouri and then New York again. So he doesn't play Matsuteru, but he is on the team. So they get red blankets embroidered with a white U and a championship emblem uh, as a personal trophy for all of the players. So Watt and Moss drive out to the middle of the desert because Moss's family was from San Francisco. And while he was away at Utah playing basketball, his family were forcibly relocated to Topaz War Relocation Center. They go there, and Watt presents the blankets to the Tatsuno family, who are still in internment. This actually gets captured on film because Moss's brother Dave had smuggled a camera into Topaz he is the only person to ever document what life was like in Topaz. And this gets turned into a documentary after he is released from internment called Topaz, which gets added to the National Film Registry after it was selected by the Library of Congress to be culturally significant. So you can only imagine like what these feelings must be for these Japanese Americans where like I'm playing basketball on a national stage, knowing that I'm lucky that my family aren't in concentration camps, but my teammate isn't. Like, not only could they not afford to send him here, he's back home watching us do this. He knows that his family, in the same state, is in a concentration camp. After this, the U.S. government changes their policy to allow for the drafting of Asian Americans. And after all of this, Watt gets drafted. We've thought about it real hard, and we will give you the opportunity to give your life for this. You're welcome. So Watt serves with the 442nd Infantry Unit, which was comprised mostly of Japanese Americans. And he gets sent to Hiroshima, three months after the atomic bomb was dropped. It was his job to determine the effect of repeated bombing on civilians through interviews. So he went from person to person, family to family, to interview remaining civilians in Hiroshima. He was not allowed to ask specifically about the atomic bomb. Like, he was given a general set of questions about strategic bombing during the war. He visited an uncle on an island near Hiroshima at one point, 
where they ate clams out of the bay because they had no concept of radiation. He later said, I didn't learn too much about other things, but I think I learned a lot about the nature of the people there. So after two years of just interviewing Japanese civilians about the bombings done by Americans, Watt is discharged and gets to go home to Utah. So he plays basketball again. Now as the elder statesman, he helps lead Utah to a great regular season. And once again, they were invited to the NIT. And this time, it's not really depleted squads because most servicemen are back playing for colleges. They beat Duquesne 45-44 in the first round. Then they beat West Virginia 64-62 in the semis. And this sets up a clash with Adolph Rupp's Kentucky in the championship. Kentucky, who knocked them out the, the previous Kentucky, season. who knocked them out of the NIT originally, which then allowed for them to go win the NCAA tournament. And uh, this is all, presumably, if it's the, the final for the NIT, is this also MSG? This is also at MSG. So this is like his fourth massive game at MSG in four years between we've got the loss to Kentucky, the NCAA championship win, and then the crossover win over St. John's, and now this. Yes. And... Utah beats Kentucky 49-45 to in the championship game. Watt was the primary defender on All-American Ralph Beard, who was considered the best player in college at that point. The next day, the New York Times said, and again, this is 40s. I'm not defending how they refer to anybody. They say, Little Watt Misaka, American-born of Japanese descent, was a, quote, cute fellow, intercepting passes and making the night miserable for Kentucky. That's honestly way more racially sensitive and politically correct than I expected from a New York sports publication in the late 40s. Much later in life, Watt's Utah teammate Arnie Farron, uh, who had served as Utah's athletic director in the 80s, said of Watt, quote, Imagine playing in Madison Square Garden, the mecca of college basketball, guarding the best player in the game and shutting him out. That may be the best defensive performance in the history of the tournament. But Watt's not done with basketball yet. His eligibility's gone. But 1947, the first ever basketball draft by the then BAA. And Watt gets drafted in the seventh round, number 61 overall by the New York Knicks. And I do want to note that there was a New York Times article in 2009 using information from a Knicks media guide and a documentary that was later released about Watt that had said that he was the first ever draft pick from the Knicks. Records are sparse from that time because, again, this was the first ever draft. All that is known is that he was drafted this year by the Knicks. There was like a list of like a so-called negotiations, which was essentially a draft list. But the current information says that Dick Holub was technically the first Knicks draft pick. We're not really sure what order people were selected in. That's just the best one that we have. So he wasn't the first ever Knicks draft pick, but he was drafted by the Knicks in the first ever draft. This motherfucker loves Madison Square Garden. Watt, despite his, again, very small stature, makes the Knicks opening night roster. And he plays in the first couple games, scoring seven points total. Not a lot, but that is enough to make him the first non-white player to ever play in professional basketball. 
This is the same year as Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier. Unlike with Jackie, this was much understated. No interviews, no media attention, no real racism, according to Watt. He said that New York was like the one place in the world where he never felt discriminated against. He said New Yorkers were like actually very chill about everything, especially because he had dealt with during his college career a lot of racist chants, especially since his whole college career was other than that last year spent during a war against Japan. With that, he is still the fourth shortest player to ever play in the NBA. At the time, he was the shortest in the league, and it was just a little difficult, and he does get cut after a few games. He says he just thinks that you know the team had a lot of guards, and it wasn't the right time. The Harlem Globetrotters offered him a deal because he had played against them in an exhibition with the Knicks and done really well, but he turns it down. Because we should have the Knicks and the Globetrotters playing again. When did that stop? I would be totally down to see that. Yeah, I remember but, like even like the late 90s, early 2000s, the Harlem Globetrotters would play a legitimate basketball game against like the NCAA tournament champions. The one I specifically remember is they played Michigan State one year. And I think that would be great. It, it's a real game. Let's just see how they stack up. Like probably pretty competitive still. I think we somehow have to figure out how to incorporate anti-tanking measures into you have to still at least be able to beat the Harlem Globetrotters in a game of basketball. Like, if you're one of the top lottery teams, in order to be allowed to have your pick, you do still have to execute with the same roster that just finished with one of the league's worst records against the Harlem Globetrotters. Have the Wizards face the Globetrotters. If you don't win, you your pick gets dropped 10 spots in the draft. Yeah, something like that. Like, you, there has to be some penalty for not putting out a real team. That would be very fun. We'll we'll we'll, we'll figure out who we can talk to to get that uh, going. Too bad David Stern isn't still commissioner. We could you know make a Sammy call, but away from that, Watt does decide to go back to Utah. He goes back to the University of Utah first to finish his degree. He had a few classes left uh, to take, and he gets a degree in engineering. And he becomes an electrical engineer in Salt Lake City. And that's where he's going to spend pretty much the rest of his life. Wanting a sporting outlet, Watt picks up something else, bowling. He becomes an avid bowler who served as the league director of the local Japanese-American bowling league for about 30 years. And he every year he participated in the Japanese-American National Bowling Association's tournament. He was so good that at the age of 80, he bowled a 299. That's good. It is not 300, but it is it's very not 300, good. but he was 80 years old. That's got to be like sooner. That's got to be like the most I'm trying What's to the think highest? like it's just, I can't imagine like it's it's like getting to the final pitch of a perfect game. Like obviously, it is a perfect game in bowling. I I just it, but it also feels somewhat like tangible because like I've bowled, I've bowled strikes. And I just can't imagine the feeling of sitting on 290 and that one bastard pin just refuses to go down. It's all right. You know, I'm sure that Watt bowled a 300 at some point with, a, with how good he apparently was. <clears throat> this is just that at the age of 80, rule bowling a 299 was enough that it got like actual media attention to the point where there were articles written about it. And prior to being recognized anywhere for his basketball career, in 1997, he gets inducted into the Japanese-American National Bowling Hall of Fame, which is a thing. 
And I'm happy that that is a thing because it is the most niche Hall of Fame I've ever heard of. And I'm a guy who talked about the Staten Island Hall of Fame last week. I mean, going by our friend Craig Goldstein's rules, that is still just like three descriptors. So I, I think it's still well within the range. True, true. Two years later, he gets inducted into a bigger Hall of Fame, the Utah Sports Hall of Fame. And this brings a renewed focus to Watt as a person and for his career. And in 2000, there was a landmark exhibit called More Than a Game Sport in the Japanese-American Community, which was featured at the Japanese-American National Museum in L.A. This has a massive exhibit on Watt, and this sparks a lot of interest. A documentary film called Transcending the Watt Misaka Story premiered in 2008. And from that point, there was a lot more recognition on Watt's career. He was recognized by the Knicks. More articles being written about him. He made Weber State's Hall of Fame. Utah, unfortunately, did not recognize him until it was a little too late. Watt passed away on November 20th, 2019, the age of 95. Two and a half years later, Utah does posthumously retire his number 20 jersey. Don't know why they didn't do it before, because they had retired jerseys of his teammates from those teams. I don't want to immediately say racism, because you know he, he always spoke very highly of the University of Utah as a place, as a university, as a team. Looks like it honestly was a big oversight on their part. They should have done it earlier, but I'm glad that at least now there is much more recognition on what Watt did for Japanese Americans, for Utah, for any non-white person in the NBA, and just his life. It feels like at any one turn, things could have gone so terribly for him. And somehow, you know, through his own like decision-making and perseverance and work ethic and actions, they just continued to avoid that doom counter and feels like a true Cinderella story his entire life. I mean, I, I can't by any means disagree that he was able to overcome immense odds to accomplish everything that he accomplished. If we are stepping back, we're taking a thousand foot view of the category. My heart is saying what, but I feel like I need to at least try and poke a couple holes to engender some debate. I'll point out first this NCAA run. The NIT, as you said, was more prestigious at the time. Sure, they were underdogs in a lot of those games. This was still like a team that made the NIT getting dropped in the NCAA. Certainly see. There were game-by-game context. A lot of people certainly kept doubting them. No argument there whatsoever. But you are coming from the more prestigious tournament and taking a step down in that sense. I think maybe that plays into some of the kind of underestimating that people did when they they came down. Like, oh, these guys lost. Yeah, they lost in the better tournament. And I would also say... And that's why I think it's important that I added the fact that the only reason they got in the NIT was Mm -hmm. because they're team manager annoyed the president of MSG constantly. Okay. They were underdogs in every single game of the NCAA tournament because people did not think they were good. They were not thought of as good for the NIT. What you have to remember is it was broken down by regions at that point where they would not really take more than one team from every region. 
and the West was considered bullshit. Like, Utah got in the NIT because they had an annoying team manager and there was no one else in the West for them to pick, for the most part. That's good to know because I also wanted to point out that then in 47 with their NIT appearance, like, they just are a good team that time like you, you they are a much better they are a much better team in 47 they're not as good as kentucky was considered the yeah. best in the country but it was not as much of a cinderella story for them to make the final against kentucky it was still an upset for them to beat kentucky but not on the same level as that 44 team masaka i i react strongly to the story but i felt like i had to bring up those points i think those are the things that kind of attack the the cinderella qualifications but that's that's just one of these three yeah, I mean, I, I love the Watt Masaka story. I'm kind of torn towards it as well. And I mean, the thing is, with this category, it's interesting because I think often the close but not close enough lends itself as a pro in a person's camp. But in this case, I think with Tim Henman, the fact that he never reaches the heights of winning Wimbledon and being that first Englishman to finally break through. I think for this specific category, it's actually maybe a knock against. Because, sure, like, clock strikes midnight on Cinderella, but she does ultimately still end up with Prince Charming. Or whatever the fuck that guy's name was. I don't know if Prince Charming was... <laughs> no, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is the one that's literally just Prince Charming, at least in the Disney one. I think so. I, I always get mixed up, yeah, between, like, Snow White and all the different ones. I was going to do a whole thing where, like, I took advantage of all the classes I took in children's literature and folklore to go back to, the, like... BCE origins of this in Greece. I decided not to do that because there's not a lot of consistency between the archetypes of this story. No, that's fair. Yeah, so like I to me, like that's a slight knock against Tim Henman. I think he's somebody that's gonna look stronger on relitigation. But I think for this specific category, that's a slight knock against. And then I will fully acknowledge, like, yeah, like Jamie Vardy, if, if you know soccer, you know who Jamie Vardy is. There's no, he, I don't think he's too good to guy, but he's better than, or more notorious than Wat Misaka, without a doubt. He and is, the, I'll, that, I'll give you credit. He's absolutely the avatar of that Leicester team to someone like me who is aware of them, but does not regularly follow the Premier League. He was the player that I knew during that run. Right. He would the he's, guy that scored all the goals. Yeah, he's definitely the most recognizable Leicester player, even if like he wasn't the best, because you could argue that N'Golo Conte was just the best player on that team, or maybe Riyad Mahrez. But like Jamie Vardy is the talisman of that team. Danny Drinkwater, I think, is the guy of that team. Where you Sorry, think what about, now? <laughs> Sorry, what now? Wait, you never heard of Danny Drinkwater? No, I haven't. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about Danny Drinkwater another time because I don't want to detract from Jamie Vardy here. But no, I, I like Jamie Vardy. I've got nothing against Jamie Vardy. I'm not going to make an argument to try to disqualify Jamie Vardy for any reason. I just like Watt a lot. Watt is going to be my pick, I think, no matter what. As much as I did enjoy the presentations, I just I, I couldn't get past that, like everything that I read about him. But I like Jamie Vardy. Not going to say anything negative about him. And I do appreciate a man who is fueled solely solely by Red Bull, which is me 95% of the time. Right. I think what we can say, if, if there were to be a tie, and it doesn't sound like there is a tie, but if we had to break a tie, 
I think I'm going to lean with the person who overcame racism versus the person who was racist. I'm not, say- I'm not saying he is a racist. I don't. But he think did he racist is- things and said racist things. Exactly. We're not. We are not everything that we do. But he did do that. And Watmisaka was on the exact opposite side of that kind of interaction. So I think in the name of progressivism and anti-racism, um, I think our choice here is clear. Unless you, if you have a final thought, James. I, I think I agree. I want to, I think, put a pin in one last point I'd say, which is the clock striking midnight is an important factor of the Cinderella story, I think. And, and I want to take a second I have in my head justified why that agrees with the decision. It sounds like we're reaching because he has an amazing college career and all of a sudden the clock strikes midnight because he gets fucking drafted and sent to Hiroshima right after they drop a bomb on it and is still then able to come back is then, you know, found with the glass slipper that brings him back to Madison square garden. After all these years, I, I agree with Wat Masaka and I've eliminated, I think the only thing in my head that was trying to keep me away from it. Also, if I'm not mistaken, he won a Juco championship at Weber state and then he won an NCAA and then he won an NIT. So that's three different kinds of college championships, which is another delightful superlative to have. That is true. That is true. Well, I don't, I don't think we need to make much more ado about this. So it is with unanimous consent that this hall has no choice but to recognize a three-time collegiate champion, a one-time draftee into World War II, the first <laughs> draftee who was not a white man into the NBA, the person who broke the color barrier of the NBA, even if it was only for three games, the man who came so close to that perfect bowling game at the age of 80, but... This is not going to be another close heartbreak within the life of Wat Misaka because he is the latest inductee into the Hall of Guy. Welcome, Wat Misaka. The more I think about it, the more that his high score in bowling is 299 actually becomes very appealing to me. It's extremely poignant. That's his, that's his close but not close enough moment. That is, that is uh, so, so essential to... to the I need us to guy. get where the one miss happened, really. Because well, it wouldn't have to be last pin. Yeah, it, it would have to, to be the last pin, pin for it to be 299, because otherwise it would be 290. I was trying to think if you could do a spare in the first frame, but yeah, no, you're absolutely correct. Absolutely brutal. Uh, but not a brutal outcome for Watt now here in the hall, and hopefully not a brutal listening experience for you all. Of course, if it wasn't brutal, there are some people that we have to thank for that. Those would be producer Craig and all the coders behind him, as well as our musical director, Don Ham for that lovely theme music. If y'all enjoy what you hear and you want to continue to follow along with sometimes not just me complaining about the Ravens. In fact, now that the Orioles are owned by a billionaire, probably a lot more positivity on both our Blue Sky and Discord. So feel free to check any of that out at bit.ly slash remember that guy. All one word, all lowercase. Share it with a friend. Share the show. We love when people do that because we want to thank most of all you, dear listener, for joining us once again. And we hope that you will continue to join us. Gentlemen, do we have anything else here on the way out? Over under two years before James complains about the new owners of the Orioles. If they extend people in the next month, the over under is the length of those extensions. (laughs) I think that's totally fair. Uh, Highway to lads. Highway to lasses as well. 
back in the driver's seat to win promotion after Burnley's defeat by Nottingham Forest. Nottingham Forest were very rude to end our undefeated streak within the third tier of the English football pyramid. But by beating Burnley, the Lasses are back in control, uh, can control their own destiny, and they're also in the semifinal of the league trophy, which is for the third and fourth divisions of the women's tier. So potentially coming home with some silverware, looking like the favorites are in promotion. Howie the Lasses. Howie the Lasses. Fuck you, Nottingham Forest. That's all we got this week, folks. We hope you'll join us next week. But until then, I've been one of your hosts, James. I've been number one Watt Misaka fan, Xavier. And I'm Diaz. And as a random man at a convenience store once said, you're not that guy, pal. You're not that guy. Diaz, I do have to let you know, you have used that one before. I've probably used it at least two other times. (laughs) This is only the second. This is only the second. When it comes to original outros, I'm not your guy. <laughs> Leave that part in. There we go. We were this close to Fabian Cher becoming not only the first defender to ever score a hat trick in Premier League history, he also would have been the most handsome man to ever do so. I don't know if you ever a seen defender a has never had a hat trick. Really? Not once. not once. It's not something I think there'd be a lot of, but I would have expected a couple nickels by now. Yeah, we I learned about that last week when Gabrielle, the big Gabby I told you about, Gabrielle Magalaish, scored two goals in a game. But the second goal was taken away and given as an own goal. So then for the rest of the game, I was like, all right, well, it doesn't matter because it's not going to count. And then a week later, the Premier League did give it back. So if he had scored a third... They wouldn't have known it was a hat trick at the time, and it would have been a belated hat trick a week later. There was one play for Cher. Like it was like the 88th, and like Aston Villa just had like two very near opportunities to make a 3-2. And he had it on the back line. He kind of just like kept going forward and he kind of just kept going forward and he had options to pass and he just wasn't. Yeah. And he got like up to the strikers before he was finally like, oh I would I would be especially if it was like up three one. If you're in that position and you're telling me it's never been done, I would be feeding him all day long there at the end. Put him up at striker. We'll drop back Miggy Almiron and put him at center back and we'll yeah. just see how it goes. 